Greetings. This is Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today, I'm joined in the podcast by Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist for our fixed income team here at Diamond Hill. We're going to talk about the latest comments from the Fed, the interest rate environment, and more specifically, the impact that it's had on the mortgage market. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Douglas Gimple. Hey, Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Jess. Uh, As always, it is great to be here. Well, we have several topics on the agenda today, Doug, and we're going to spend some time diving into the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, or as they say, the CMBS market. But um, let's start out with some broad thoughts about the bond market in general. And Doug, in full disclosure, in many of our recent updates, I have started to feel like a broken record asking you about inflation and interest rates and the Fed. But here I go again. Uh, The Fed had its meeting last week on May 2nd and 3rd. So perhaps you could start with a quick rundown on the main takeaways from that meeting. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And it's... uh... It's interesting. Yes, it is a broken record, but it's all the things that are really of interest right now. Um, the only thing you didn't mention was the debt ceiling, but you know that's something that's on everybody's mind. The Fed had their meeting uh, on May 2nd and 3rd, and, and really, I, I think to no one's surprise, they raised interest rates by 25 basis points uh, to now a range of five to five and a quarter percent. Uh, but that now totals 500 basis points of rate increases since March of 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's the fastest pace of monetary tightening since the early 1980s. And we saw all the pain that was felt last year uh, from rising interest rates. And a little bit of that continues, but I think we've now you know, kind of plateaued. And you know, based on what the Fed was talking about, uh, we may be at that that pause moment. And, and everything that I say, you know, from here on in regarding the Fed is with the giant caveat uh, that between now and the next meeting in June, we're going to get a bunch of economic data, um, and that can change what we are expecting. But for now, uh, it feels like you know they're going to pause. And the biggest change uh, to their statement was the dropping of the word anticipates, and they replaced it with maybe appropriate. So they're essentially shifting the narrative from ongoing rate hikes, which is what we've been going through, uh, to much more appropriate data dependency, meaning they're going to give themselves the flexibility to adjust on the fly. And whether or not they're going to go 25 or hold, or I think very remotely, my opinion, cut 25 basis points between now and the end of the year, it now becomes much more data dependent. So you know, other things to take away from the meeting, the Fed remains, quote, highly attentive to inflation risks, uh, which means that, you know, there could be, you know, a a jump in inflation because we've seen that, you know, historically when inflation comes down, it doesn't come down in a straight line. There are bumps in the road. There are moments where inflation may jump a little bit, uh, but they're looking broadly uh, to see what the overall trend in inflation is. uh, And they're going to continue to focus on that. They're not as concerned right now with the jobs market. You know, we had we had solid jobs numbers. We did have some negative revisions, uh, but still positive. Unemployment's at three point four percent. So I, I think they're hard pressed to show concern about the labor market right now. Um, if if concern, their only concern would be that it's too strong, um, and so that's something to keep an eye on. 
Uh, they did talk about uh, the turmoil in the banking system, specifically Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Signature Bank, and then the fire sale of First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan. Uh, Powell reiterated their belief that, quote, the banking system is sound and resilient. And that almost just feels like, you know, the worst possible thing you could say, because subsequently something's going to blow up. Um, but we haven't seen that yet. Um, so hopefully we're past the worst of it. Uh, we did see some volatile price movements in both equity and debt of regional banks, uh, names like PacWest, Western Alliance, following that Fed meeting, uh, which shows that, you know, there's still angst in the market. There's still concern. Um, it seems to have in the last couple of days calmed down, but that's something that's still kind of in the back of everyone's mind. But, you know, all of this being said, we're now back in that familiar position where the Fed has essentially outlined that their two options for the next several meetings are either to hold current levels or possibly raise rates, depending on what the economy tells us. But the market, based on futures and how they're pricing, is once again showing roughly 70, 70 basis points of rate cuts before the end of the year. So we had had this dislocation at the beginning of the year right before March 15th, which was Signature Valley and Silicon Valley Bank going under, uh, the market had gotten in line with the Fed. Mm -hmm. After the, the angst in the regional bank market, uh, that bifurcated again, where the Fed held the line and the market said there's going to be cuts. And now we're back to that, that part of the, of the equation where the Fed is saying one thing and the markets are trying to price something else. I always, I side with the Fed. They're the ones that actually make the decision. So I'll side with the fact that we're not going to see rate cuts before the end of the year uh, and that going forward, we just don't know what's going to happen. And now that I've said that, I'll most likely be wrong, but that's kind of <laughs> how we're thinking about it. And it's funny you mentioned that, Doug, because I was going to comment that this feels like what the market has been waiting for, which is the pause and what they've been expecting. Yep. And now it sounds like now the market is expecting and wanting cuts, which to your point, likely may not happen if the Fed stays the course on what they've explained to the markets. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other part of that is the, the market's been expecting cuts, even when they got in line with the Fed's terminal rate of, I think it's five and an eighth, mm -hmm. the market was still saying by the end of the year, we're going to cut. So they were saying, okay, we agree with you. We're going to get to a certain level, but we think the market is pricing that there's going to be cuts. And that's kind of the difference right now. Um, and market wishing and Fed delivering are two very different things. Yes, Absolutely. Um, let me circle back to something you mentioned. The Fed characterized the banking sector as, quote, sound and resilient, unquote, uh, which, which is good news for everybody and market participants in general. Um, but can you share with us from your perspective as bottom-up investors um, how those banking issues have impacted the bond market? And perhaps you could comment on both spreads and liquidity if there's been, if you've seen an impact there. Certainly, specific to the financial sector, and that's what that's what we'll obviously focus on here. Mm -hmm. It's been quite the ride, um, really, starting in last year through the early days of March to now. So, if we look at at spreads, they peaked in the fourth quarter of 2022. Um, after kind of the the middle part of 2022, spreads were compressing slowly, a steady path lower until we hit that second week in March. We had some you know day to day kind of fluctuations. But the trend was lower. And then March 15th is really the day that I think it was that Monday, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley, both went under and Credit Suisse was then subsequently bought by Deutsche Bank. 
if we look at the Bloomberg U.S. Financial Institutions Index and use that as a proxy, we can see that the spreads on the index jumped nearly 50% between March 10th, when we started to get some feeling about what was going on, and March 15th. So a huge jump, jump just over that kind of long weekend or that weekend and Friday or so. Um, and then they fell about 20% over the next month. So they came back down as things kind of stabilized, um, but then jumped another 12% on the news that First Republic was going to be purchased by JP Morgan. So it's definitely been kind of a roller coaster, a lot of uh, extreme volatility early on, uh, then pulling back and then widening out again, just because these, these headline risks, you know, pop in the news. And we knew that, you know, felt that there were going to be issues with First Republic only because the cycle was feeding on itself. You know, the, the cycle was feeding on a bank run and, and earnings weren't as good. And so it just kept, you know, multiplying and, and hammering the stock and the company to where it got to the point where JP Morgan stepped in and, and, and said they'd buy them. Uh, but when we look at the rest of the market, corporate issuance in April continued to drop. So it brought about 67 billion in new issue to market, which is a drop, a reduction of about 40% of what we saw in March. And if we kind of look at January, February, March, April, it's a consistently decreasing amount of issuance coming to the market. A combination of higher rates, angst in credit, angst in uh, financials, all leading to less and less issuance coming out. Um, daily trade volumes in corporate debt dropped by about 22% uh, in April compared to, to March. Other parts of the market, CMBS issuance continues to struggle. There's only been about 32.1 billion since the beginning of the year. That includes both agency and non-agency. That's down 68% compared to the same period of time, period of time last year. Higher mortgage rates are weighing on non-agency resi mortgages, 20.5 billion through April of 23, compared to 77.5 billion over the same time period. Uh, but ABS issuance remains strong, about 22 billion in, in April, heavily dominated by autos. But you know what that's telling us is that the market is slowing down, mm -hmm. and you know the spread story continues. We've seen spread widening across all risk sectors, as we saw the the uh, the unsettling of the markets with what was going on in the regional banks. Um, but liquidity has been okay, uh, depending on what you're looking at, um, and I think that's you know a function of the broader market. But if you look at things like regional banks. And, you know, what the spreads have done and even banks that that weren't called into question. So Huntington, Citizens, uh, these other banks that are out there that are considered regionals or even super regionals, they were paying the price on their debt as spread as spreads widen. And as investors, that's not something that, you know, we thought of as an opportunity uh, just because there's still so much uncertainty around, you know, the regional banks. Uh, not that we think there's there's more pain to come. We just we're not positive, and we'd rather spend our time looking at other parts of the market. So definitely a shift in liquidity. Uh, definitely that shift in spreads. But you know, and I was on a client call earlier today, and it just feels like really in May and in the latter part of April as well, we've reached this complacency in fixed income, where mm -hmm. we're just kind of holding the line, mm -hmm. and we're not seeing dramatic shifts one day to the next. It's just things have kind of, we, we've digested all the bad news and we're kind of now feels like waiting 
Um, and is that waiting for the debt ceiling? Is that waiting for the next Fed meeting? Is it waiting for more economic data? Yes to all of those, but it's definitely this period of, of what I'll call complacency as we're kind of just mm-hmm. getting past the, the noise of the first quarter and, and into April. And it sounds like given some of those trends of declining issuance in several markets, with the exception of ABS that you mentioned, um, do you feel like those trends are going to continue? It definitely feels like it. Um, definitely within the CMBS space. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the area that we'll talk about in a little bit, but that's the area that's had the most headaches uh, mm-hmm. just because of, you know, if we just talk about office, it's the shift of work, uh, the shift to working from home. Right. And that changes the dynamic of occupancy. And mm-hmm. I, and I saw something uh, earlier this morning and I, and I want to say, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it, the empty office space in New York City as of right now could fill, I think it was 15 Empire State Buildings. So that's a lot of empty space uh, that the CMBS market's going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But um, so I I think that definitely in that sector, I think on the corporate side, until we get some clarity uh, as to is the Fed done, um, what is what does the economic situation look like? We'll probably continue to see some slowdown. But you know, just this week, we saw a huge issue come from Apple, uh, which, I mean, do they need the money? Probably not, but they're still going to do it. Um, so we're continuing to see some on the corporate side. But I, I, the expectation is that we'll definitely be below what we saw last year, which wasn't you know a record-setting year, but it was, oh. a, it was a sizable year. And I think we'll definitely see that kind of pull back a little bit. Okay. Well, let's dive into the CMBS market. And in your latest fixed income commentary, which for our listeners' benefit is available on our website at www.diamond-hill.com, you take a deep dive into the CMBS market for us in that commentary, which, as you've mentioned, has been a prominent topic among headlines these days with the interest rate backdrop, what it is. And again, from your team's perspective, um, can you share a few thoughts about what you guys consider the, the current state of the CMBS market in general? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and summarize uh, what, what we put into that commentary as briefly as I can. But as you know, I tend to just ramble on and on. But <laughs> so, you know, we look at the different parts of the, of the CMBS market. So retail uh, had been seen as like the biggest headache before the pandemic you know, with the emergence of online shopping and the dominance of, of Amazon, the entry of Walmart. Um, and then the pandemic really didn't help with everybody shopping on Amazon and everybody having their groceries delivered. And so, you know, the retail footprint was getting smaller as, you know, malls, the, the dynamic of malls have shifted. My wife had to explain to me that at one of the malls here in Columbus, one of the anchor stores has been taken out and they put in basketball courts in a swimming pool and they host basketball tournaments at the mall. Um, So that shift in usage is, is quite interesting. Um, And the market, it's adjusted to a certain degree um, offsetting some of the loss of retail with the growth of things like, you know, industrials with storage facilities used by Amazon and distribution centers of getting product to people as quickly as possible. I can order something on Amazon now and I can potentially get it same day because right. they keep putting all these distribution centers. Well, that's part of the CMBS market. Um, that's That tends to be securitized. But as I referenced earlier, you know, the biggest headline right now is office space. Mm-hmm. It had been one of the best asset classes in commercial real estate prior to the pandemic. Um, it appears that 
you know, some version of work from home is going to be with us for the long haul, though it's already evolved into kind of a hybrid form. You know, you can be in the office for three days or four days, and we now have that flexibility, which, which makes everyone's life a little bit easier. But that does mean you're going to have empty, empty office space. So the market still likely has some, some painful changes to endure before reaching some kind of level of stability and, and really price, price discovery. Um, and I've, in the, in the uh, monthly update, I include an example kind of quote ripped from the headlines to seal something from law and order. Um, <laughs> 350 California street in San Francisco. So we've, we've seen headlines about San Francisco and, um, and the changes that have gone on there to be, to be generous. But in 2019, this property appraised at 300 million. And in 2020, it was put up for sale at 250 million. Brokers are now expecting bids for the building to be about $60 million. That's a drop of nearly 80% in value. It's wow. not, now this building is not part of a securitization. So it's not part of that CMBS market, but I'm just providing an example of, you know, the real world and the pain that's being felt in that market. And you can see sure. that in their facilities in LA that are going through the same type of pain. Um, but, you know, I'll use the example of our office here in Columbus. You know, we have the first, we have half of the first floor and the entire second floor. And we're revisiting, you know, do we need all of this? Because we've had people that relocate. Jess, you're based in St. Louis. We've got people right. in Florida, uh, people in Texas. So that have moved post pandemic. So do we need all that space? Probably not. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how all of this shakes out over the next couple, next couple of years with office space. Another key piece of the CMBS space is the volume of loans maturing in the next three years, which is often referred to as a maturity wall. A large part of that volume is made up of immediately after post global financial crisis. So think roughly between 2012 and 2014, 10 year fixed rate loans. So that means they're coming up for refinancing in the next 12 to 18 months. And that could be a very painful convergence with the need to refinance at much higher rates than at origination 10 years ago. So these financial gyrations could definitely hurt the equity holders. So those are the holders that own kind of the first line of loss and tends to be 10 to 20% of the overall deal. But as, as we've looked at the market, if it's a good property that's close to fully leased and it's doing well and it's in a good location, the issue won't necessarily be on the bondholder side, but there is concern on the equity side. And we see that with some of the headlines that have come across more recently. Sure. Let's take a step back now, Doug, for those who may be a little bit less familiar with the CMBS market. Um, you outline a brief overview of the evolution of this market that uh, you, dates back to the 1980s. What's important for investors to understand about the evolution of this market and how it looks today? So we've talked about in the past, the changes to the ABS market, the asset-backed securities market. And, and as with most other areas of the securitized market, there have been substantial changes to the CMBS market since its mm -hmm. early days. So things continue to evolve and change. But when we look back at the history, this market, the CMBS market, grew out of the ashes of the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, when roughly one third of the savings and loan market failed. The government created the Resolution, Resolution Trust Corporation, or RTC, which was tasked with liquidating real estate-related assets of those failed firms. The RTC did so by holding a sizable portion of the assets, 
but selling off tranches to outside investors. It was attractive for outside investors because they would only face losses if defaults exceeded the portion that RTC had retained, again, the equity portion of that deal. So this was basically an early form of credit enhancement. And banks that witnessed the success of the RTC realized, hey, you know what? We can replicate this structure through a new investment vehicle, which is the private label or non-agency CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed security. Over time, the market has evolved from a structural standpoint. So you had conduits, which are, think of a residential mortgage pass-through, where you put the deals together and it all passes through. And it's all you know one pool of collateral. Now you have single asset, single borrower, or SASB. Uh, you have commercial real estate, collateralized loan obligations, which is a very long-winded way of saying CRE, CLOs. And then conduits, which again are the, those original structures. So we'll walk through those real quick just to differentiate what they are. So conduits collateralized by many loans that can encompass a variety of property types from broad geographic regions. The top 10 loans account for a significant portion of the collateral. So they're, they're essentially top heavy. Um, the interest rate is fixed and cash flow distribution follows a waterfall structure similar to what we've talked about with asset-backed securities. So your cash flows go from the top down, your losses from the bottom up. So your front pay tranches get paid off quicker and therefore earn less yield. So you have less risk. Single asset, single borrower, that can be composed of either, as it sounds, a single asset serving as collateral. And for this, I always use the example of a high-end hotel property in Maui. Um, that is all about Maui. It's not about the hotel. You know, you can rip that hotel down and put another one up and it'll still be attractive because it's in Maui. It's not the Hyatt here in Columbus, which is fine, but nobody's coming here for vacation. <laughs> so that's single asset. Single borrower is somebody like Motel 6 who did a deal a couple of years ago where they use multiple locations. So it's a single borrower Motel 6 with multiple properties. So it's, it's a little bit clearer uh, for your underlying collateral. These can be fixed or floating. And then CRE CLOs, those are collateralized with bridge loans that are secured by transitional properties that are going through a repositioning or a redevelopment in order to generate additional revenue. So think about uh, an apartment building going through re renovations to charge higher rent by adding in a gym, an improved HVAC system. And so they can say, well, I'm going to charge you instead of $1,000, I'm going to charge you $1,300. And so it can really, it can be any commercial property. Uh, it could be multi-use. It could be any of these different properties that fall under CMBS. Um, they tend to be a bit more concentrated. They're generally floating rate. Uh, and they tend to be a bit more customized and therefore a bit more complex and therefore maybe a little less liquid, not illiquid, but a little less liquid than your single asset, single borrower or your conduit deals. So Doug, it sounds like this is a, a fairly large and broad market when you consider all three of those different segments. How do investors like yourselves identify specific opportunities in the CMBS market in any of those subsectors, if you will? One of the things that we talk about quite a bit is differentiating ourselves from the benchmark and peers while maintaining a similar risk profile. So the Bloomberg US Aggregate Bond Index and the Bloomberg CMBS Investment Grade Index, both are, are very limited 
regarding what is included from the non-agency CMBS sector. So we've talked about it with regards to resi mortgages, with regards to ABS, but it's just as restrictive when it comes to non-agency or private label CMBS. These indices, uh, which are kind of the end-all be-all, um, only include conduit CMBS. So what we talked about earlier, the original iteration of CMBS and exclude single asset borrower and CRE CLOs. This is most obvious when you examine the level of inclusion for the index compared to the overall CMBS market. So in 2008, the aggregate index accounted for roughly 66% of the outstanding CMBS market, but currently it only accounts for 42% of the market, even though the overall CMBS market has continued to grow. It's that growth in the diversification of the types of deals that are out there that means there's more and more that are not included in the index, but that are similar from a risk standpoint. And you know that presents opportunities for asset managers who focus on bottom-up security selection. You know, investment in the right non-agency CMBS securities can provide differentiation from the market and the potential for attractive relative returns to traditional fixed income benchmarks over the long term. You know, that said, we believe it's critical to maintain a selective approach and invest the time and effort to truly understand the risk reward profile of each investment. In other words, not to just allocate, you know, blindly across single asset, single borrower, or CRE, CLO. It's, it's key to understand the issuer, to understand how they think about risk, to understand how they underwrite and the diversification of the pool of assets. So all of these things are going into making those decisions as to do I buy this or do I buy this other security? And that is, we believe, what's most important for what we do and for our clients is really to understand the minutia of you know, a CRE CLO deal that's a bit more complex uh, and what are the risks associated with that for us and our clients. Shifting gears a bit now, Doug, um, a lot of our listeners are tuned into the health of the consumer given where we are with the economy right now. Can you share your team's thoughts on the consumer from a fixed, in fixed income perspective and perhaps share what you're seeing in terms of delinquency rates right now? That's a question that we get quite often, mm -hmm. uh, given our exposure to the consumer through whether it is through its ABS or through residential mortgages. Um, and it's something that we've used as a focus from our most recent monthly piece, which is called trends in securitization. And it's something where we look at the different aspects of the different securitization markets. Um, overall, we continue to see resiliency in the consumer. Uh, though early data in the year, you always have to look at it you know, under the lens of the impact of tax returns. Um, during the first quarter and into April, tax returns tend to have a positive impact on consumer credit reporting. And we see that with both, for example, retail and bank card 60-day delinquencies. Those have stabilized after rising over the previous several months. And part of that, we believe, can be attributed to tax returns and you know, the influx of cash that can be then applied to, to balances. Um, but despite you know, the trend of increases that we've seen um, across various levels of consumer um, securitizations, it should be noted that levels are, are well below the 10-year average. In the auto space, we've seen good signs with 30-day delinquencies steadily dropping over the first four months of the year, both in prime and subprime. Uh, as expected, prepayments in both prime and subprime have also picked up 
going back to that tax rebate impact. So overall, we continue to see the consumer holding up pretty well, despite the ongoing market gyrations and economic uncertainty. And it's helped by the strength in, in what I talked about before, the, the labor market. Mm -hmm. 3.4% unemployment. We just had 253,000 more jobs added. And I know that you know job cuts for a while there, it felt like we're coming fast and furious and we were seeing a new one every other day. But you know when you see a thousand jobs cut by Amazon or whoever it may be, in the context of the job market, it's still pretty small. And we continue to have a resilient labor market and you know wage growth has been good. And so we just haven't seen you know, the cracks in the consumer, again, we've gone back to maybe pre-pandemic levels when it comes to delinquencies and some defaults, but I would argue that's kind of the natural level that we would always be at. And the other thing to remember, specific to consumer securitization deals, so whether it's credit cards or autos or uh, consumer unsecured, direct lending, um, those deals are put together knowing that they're not perfect at underwriting. There's going to be some level of loss because that's just how the world works. And it's determining the appropriate level and then seeing how those deals have held up. And, you know, the last thing I'll mention, you know, we look at auto and, and some of the consumer, and there was really a period, uh, some of the, some of the maturities, I'm sorry, some of the issuance in call it late 2021, early 2022, where credit standards were loosening. Mm -hmm. because they wanted to generate more and more. Um, and you see that now in the performance of those vintages, but you also see that subsequent to that loosening in the end of the first half of 2022, things have tightened up again. So we're already starting to see performance rebounding. So I think there'll always be a little hesitation with maybe that pocket of vintage in that late 2021, early 2022. But you know, if you're getting paid appropriately for the risk associated with those, then that could be a very good opportunity for the portfolio. Well, sounds like there's plenty for us to chat about in future podcasts, Doug, but that is it for us today. Uh, I want to thank you again for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks and so much. I, I always enjoy being here.